this week, granting patients dying wishes in the intensive care unit, and a randomized trial of pain medicines for lower back pain. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma, I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Janice Kwan, who is a general internist at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. Hey Janice, how's it going? I'm good, how are you Amol? I'm doing wonderful, I'm in uh, the lovely Vancouver for the International Conference on Residency Education. So it's nice to be talking to you from the uh, crack of dawn because of uh, Pacific Coast time zones. So if I'm a little uh, sleepy, I'm still sort of rubbing the sleep out of my eyes over here. So you'll have to excuse me for that. But why don't we just jump right in, uh, Janice? I want you to tell me about a study looking at granting patients dying wishes in the intensive care unit. Thanks so much, Ramol. Today I wanted to talk about a paper that I came across in the Annals of Internal Medicine called Personalizing Death in the Intensive Care Unit, the Three Wishes Project by Cook and colleagues. In this study, the investigators sought to bring peace to the final days of a patient's life and to ease the grieving process by soliciting three wishes from patients, families, and clinicians, and they found that in doing so, they were able to facilitate personalization of the dying process. Interesting. So Janice, why don't you tell me a little bit more about why you wanted to talk about this study? Uh, And then I have already, I'm brimming with questions. For sure. Uh, One of the reasons why I chose this paper, actually, is that it's quite unique in that it uses mixed methods, and it's something that we don't come across often in the top-tier medical journals that we often discuss on the rounds table. To provide a bit of background, as we know in the ICU, it's a very highly charged environment, alarm-laden, and it's not necessarily conducive to ensuring that a patient dies with dignity. Rather, the dying process can be quite dehumanizing. And so the investigators sought to really address this head on. Their objectives were threefold. For the patients, they wanted to dignify their deaths and celebrate their lives. For family members, they wanted to humanize the dying experience and create positive memories. And for clinicians, they wanted to foster patient and family-centered care and inspire a deeper sense of vocation. Okay, so all of that sounds uh, very worthy. You mentioned that they went out to elicit patients' wishes at the time of dying. So I guess my question is, was was this also about trying to have those wishes be fulfilled or was it just about sort of talking about what those wishes are and then letting processes happen naturally from there? So this is an interesting study in that through multiple iterative pilots, they were able to ensure that both these wishes were first elicited and thereafter fulfilled, either before or after death, depending on how imminent death was for that given patient. So they were really actually trying, their goal was also to fulfill those wishes, not just to elicit them. Exactly. So basically what they did was they enrolled 40 patients, as well as their family members and caregivers looking after these patients, in a 21-bed medical surgical ICU in Hamilton, actually, so St. Joe's Hospital. 
and they had two criteria that they needed to fulfill. So they needed to meet one of two of these criteria. The first of which was that a decision had been made to initiate palliative withdrawal of life support or that the clinicians had communicated to the patients or their family members that the probability of death in the ICU exceeded 95%. Okay, so those were the only two inclusion criteria? They were the only two inclusion criteria. And were there any exclusion criteria? Yeah, it looks like there was one. Patients were excluded if they were admitted to the ICU for less than six hours. Okay, so once they'd enrolled patients, what did they do? What they did was to honor each of these patients, a set of wishes was generated by the patients, family members, or clinicians, and then implemented before or after the death by either the patients, the families, the clinicians, or the project team. Okay, uh, and then how did they respond to the, that list of wishes? So what they found was that overall, they were able to fulfill 97.5% of these wishes. So quite remarkable in terms of the number. Uh, and that was 159 wishes in total. In terms of costs, they ranged from zero to $20 per patient. And from the quantitative perspective, they were able to find quantitatively that end-of-life care was rated high by family members who completed a validated instrument called the Quality of End-of-Life Care 10. From a qualitative perspective, they were able to confirm that overwhelmingly implementation of this project was able to personalize the dying experience for patients, families, as well as clinicians. So it sounds like a pretty meaningful intervention, definitely for the families and those who participated in uh, these patients' deaths. So can you give me an example of the kinds of wishes that they were able to fulfill? For sure. So using the qualitative approach, the investigators were able to categorize the wishes into five broad categories, the first of which was humanizing the environment. So an example of this might have been soliciting personal mementos for the patient's room or recreating a date night in the ICU. The second category was personal tributes. An example of this might have been planting a tree in the patient's honor or holding a tea party at the patient's bedside. The third was family reconnection. So these included facilitating a Skype reunion, for example, or encouraging visitations by a beloved pet. The fourth was rituals and observances. An example of this might have been renewal of wedding vows at the patient's bedside or a memorial service at the patient's bedside. And the fifth category was broadly labeled as paying it forward. For example, a family member securing a hospital volunteer position or organ donation after the patient died. That's really interesting. I mean, I think that's probably the category of things I would imagine people would wish for. I guess I have a couple of logistical questions. So they looked at enrolling patients from the time that a decision to like withdraw care basically or institute palliative care uh, had occurred. And so I, from my experience, that would be a very short time between enrollment and death for the patient. Is that true? So you're absolutely right. If you look at the median time from enrollment into this project and death, it was one day for patients with an interquartile range of zero to two. So the patients included in this study were very imminently uh, in the dying process and near their end, near the end of life. And so how can they, how did they have enough time to elicit all these wishes and then implement them? 
So I think time in this case would be relative, and that's because although they certainly tried their best to fulfill their wishes while the patient was still alive, um, many of the wishes were fulfilled after the patient died um, and were still done in order to honor the patient. So that, as I again, as I'm thinking about this, so isn't that impressive? I'm sitting here as you're speaking and I'm actually thinking. Um, in particular, you know, again, thinking about the ICU patient population on whom we choose to often recommend implementing palliative care, most of those patients, I imagine, would have been quite incapacitated. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, how many of them did they elicit the views directly, the wishes directly from the patient versus from their family and caregivers? And was this seen as a limitation of the study or as part of the intervention? This was felt to be a limitation of the study, but also recognition that it was a reality of this particular patient population. So in this particular study, of the 40 patients that were enrolled, 33 had impaired consciousness uh, during the enrollment of the study, and so presumably weren't able to really express their wishes. Um, And so in this study, it must have been then that these wishes were sought from family members and caregivers instead. So it sounds like, in fact, it was quite a profound experience for a lot of the people involved. Was that, could they capture that in a scientific paper? I mean, it's really hard to translate, you know, dry academic content into something sort of that conveys that kind of experience. Were, Were the authors able to do that for this paper? It's interesting that you raise that point because I have to say, uh, in the many years now that I've been reading scientific journals, I have to say this is probably one of the most poignant articles I've read, and I was surprised to have encountered it in a top-tier medical journal like Annals of Internal Medicine. And One of the reasons why I found it so unique is that it used the mixed methods um, that included both quantitative and qualitative work. And actually, I wanted to read for you two exemplars from this type of qualitative paper that we don't talk about that often on the rounds table to give you an example. Sure. I, I'd be very curious to hear. So one exemplar comes from a daughter, and it's meant to be an example of giving the families a voice. She says, quote, So my mom's lying there, cognitively dead, her heart still beating. She's on life support. You have no idea who she really was. And this, it was just wonderful. It struck a chord because it allowed me to talk about her and, you know, give the staff a vision of who she was. Yeah, thanks for sharing those. I think they really capture uh, the essence of what the project was about. So why don't you wrap up, Janice, and tell me what are the major takeaway points from this study? For me, the major takeaway points are twofold, the first of which I mentioned already, and that is that we should ask patients what's important to them, and that it seems to have a profound impact on patients, family members, and clinicians. The second is a methodological one, and that is that mixed method studies, which include both quantitative and qualitative methods, can be an effective tool for evaluating nuanced questions such as end-of-life care. Okay, perfect, Janice, thanks so much. Let's, uh, let's change gears and move on to our second topic. Our second paper today is a randomized clinical trial of various pharmacotherapies for lower back pain. This study was published by Friedman and colleagues in JAMA. So this randomized control trial found that in patients who have acute lower back pain, naproxen alone was just as effective as naproxen when combined with a muscle relaxant or an opioid 
medication. Well, back pain is certainly something that probably most clinicians and listeners of this podcast come across. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why you chose to talk about this particular study? Well, partially it's self-interested in that in the last year I started having severe back pain myself. Um, It happened kind of as soon as I turned 30. I I feel like I'm going to age poorly, Janice. Um, But no, so lower back pain affects like millions of people, certainly in the United States and probably hundreds of thousands of people in Canada um, a year and causes in the U.S. almost 3 million visits to the emergency department. Observational studies show that even after about one week, almost 70% of people still have back pain. 70% of people are still using analgesics. And so there's a very legitimate question about what analgesics you start patients on and whether those are effective. One of the interesting and important things that's been seen in some of the observational data is that after three months in some patients with acute lower back pain, almost half of them report functional impairment and ongoing use of analgesic medication. And in some cases, up to 20% of patients with lower back pain uh, are continuing to use opioids that they were started on for these. So certainly a disease entity with a high degree of morbidity. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing that these authors observed is that when patients present to the emergency department, Uh, they often get prescribed multiple medications. So they're often prescribed a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory as well as a muscle relaxant, as well as an opioid. And it's not clear whether these combinations are more effective than the anti-inflammatory alone. So why don't you tell us about how the investigators went about answering this question? Yeah, so this is a randomized control trial that was based in the emergency department. They enrolled patients who uh, attended the emergency department for a visit for lower back pain. Their lower back pain had to be significant enough that it caused functional impairment, and they used a specific scale called the Roland Morris Disability Questionnaire to determine whether it was significant enough back pain. And then they excluded patients who had nerve damage or compromise as a result of their back pain. So the pain was radiating to below their legs. They excluded patients who had trauma, who had back pain for more than two weeks, uh, who were pregnant, patients who had uh, chronic opioid use. And interestingly, they also excluded patients over the age of 65, uh, perhaps because of potential concern around complications with the use of NSAIDs in uh, older patients. Great. So what did they do? Yeah, so they randomized these patients to three groups. Everyone got naproxen as their primary medication. And then one group received placebo in addition to the naproxen. Another group received cyclobenzaprine, which is a muscle relaxant. And another group received a combination oxycodone acetaminophen pill, which uh, many of our clinicians will recognize with the trade name Percocet. Uh, And patients were basically told to take the naproxen regularly twice a day, 500 milligrams twice a day. And then they were instructed to take one to two tablets of the additional medication every eight hours as necessary. Each patient was prescribed 10 days of medication. 
And then they received a follow-up phone call at seven days after their emergency room visit, and then again at three months after. The primary outcome that they were looking at was uh, the disability score using that Roland Morris disability questionnaire. Great. And what did they find? So they found that they enrolled patients who were by and large quite healthy. The average age was around 39 years old. Uh, These patients were young and did not have a lot of comorbid disease. The baseline disability score for these patients, so the Roland Morris questionnaire goes from 0 to 24. 0 means no disability, and 24 means maximum completely debilitating disability. The baseline disability score when people were enrolled in the study was around 20, uh, so quite disabling back pain. And then by one week, it was reduced to approximately 10 in basically every group. The meaningful clinical difference on that scale is about a difference of five. So the study was powered to detect a difference of five on the questionnaire. And pretty much all of the groups had a difference of 10. And there was no significant differences between the groups. How interesting. Did they look at all at adverse events? So was there any difference in harm in any of the groups? Yeah, so they did. So they found that adverse effects were actually much more likely in patients who were randomized to the opioid medication, to oxycodone acetaminophen, as opposed to placebo. And so about 31% of the patients in the oxycodone acetaminophen group had an adverse event, predominantly GI-related events, um, whereas in the anti-inflammatory alone group, uh, there was only 7%. So that's a difference of 19% and a number needed to harm of 5.3. And that was statistically significant. And then similarly, they found that in the muscle relaxant group, there was also a statistically significant difference in adverse events with a number needed to harm of, of almost eight. So not insignificant harms, with both the opioid and the muscle relaxant. And really not that surprising either. It would be interesting to see if they had, let's say, another control group with no naproxen and no muscle relaxant or opioids to see if there was any difference. Because presumably we know that NSAIDs as well aren't without harm. So it'd be interesting to see um, what that might show. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The reason they didn't do that is there have been randomized trials that have shown that the anti-inflammatories are superior to placebo in terms of effectiveness for treating acute lower back pain. And so I think that's why they didn't uh, feel the need to replicate that result in this patient population. Oh, that that definitely makes sense. So Amol, why don't you then tell us what your takeaway points are from this paper? So I think the major takeaway point here is that in this relatively young, relatively healthy patient population in the emergency department with acute lower back pain, there was no role for medications other than anti-inflammatories. Patients did not derive benefit from muscle relaxants, and they did not derive benefit from opioids. And so I think this pretty resoundingly tells us that in patients with acute lower back pain, honestly, the best treatment is reassurance. Um, which as someone who's had lower back pain before would not actually feel particularly reassuring, uh, and and perhaps anti-inflammatory medications. Um, but there's no need to add additional therapies. Great. Thank you for that. Okay. Thanks, Janice. So why don't we move on to our final segment of the episode? This is our good stuff segment. 
where we bring you short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So Janice, what caught your eye this week? What caught my eye this week is a feature in the New York Times website called Patient Voices. It doesn't seem like a new feature, but it's definitely one that caught my eye. It looks at first-person accounts of the changes, challenges, and rewards that patients face with a variety of health issues as diverse as alopecia, Alzheimer's, Charcot-Marie-Tooth, and hemophilia, and it are one to two minute snapshots from the patient's voice informing us of what it's like to live with their conditions. And I found it to be very touching and very insightful and helpful as a clinician to hear how these patients experience their disease, and I would highly recommend it to our listeners. That's a great recommendation. Thanks, Janice. I hadn't heard of that before, so I will definitely check it out. What caught your eye, Amol? So my recommendation this week is uh, something that people probably have heard about in the last uh, in the last couple of weeks in the in the sort of medical media. So I'm sure you've heard of the super hot startup Theranos um, and its incredible blood test machine. So this is something that I think made the rounds on the sort of speaker circuit and the TED media circuit and has been a very highly vaunted startup company, which is predicated around the notion that blood tests can be run on substantially less blood and do not require venipuncture, but can instead be achieved by just doing capillary blood pricks. And so recently there was this a very detailed expose in the Wall Street Journal basically stating that, in fact, many of these claims of the company were overstated and perhaps uh, the technology wasn't as developed as they had thought. In particular, they say that the machine that uses the capillary blood has only been used to run about 15 of the various you know, hundreds of blood tests that they've claimed it could run. And furthermore, apparently, uh, in order to then do blood tests on people's blood for other conventional blood tests that they can't use their special machine for, the company had been diluting people's blood. And this potentially may have affected the reliability of the results that were being reported. So certainly it's, it's a, a heavy-hitting condemnation of the company. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this evolves over time. It kind of points to some of the uh, perils with the hype cycle as it relates to healthcare. Okay, thanks so much uh, for the chat today. It was great to speak with you. And let's do it again soon. Yeah, pleasure always. Thanks. Thanks.